Good morning. Please turn with me to John 2, 13 through 25. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken forty-six years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem... At the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people, and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you have little ones first grade and under whom you'd like to, to release for children's worship and nursery, Miss Brittany will be walking them across the way. Now, for those of you who have stayed behind the faithful remnant, let me ask you a question. I need you to raise your hand if you have ever played chess or checkers. All right, leave your hands up. Leave your hands up. If, all right, so, so I have some people who've never played chess or checkers before. Okay, so if you've not played chess or checkers, have you, raise your hand if you've played Monopoly. All right, so we got chess and checkers. Keep, keep them up. Uh, so if you've never played chess, checkers, or Monopoly, have you played Battleship? All right, we got a few people still hanging on. Have you played any board game? The people with their hands down, have you played a board? Put your hands up if you've played any kind of board game. All right, great, fantastic. All right, Mexican training, that's great. All right, thank you, thank you, thank you. All right. So, now, those of you who've all played board games, kids and grown-ups alike, I want you to imagine something. Imagine that you were playing that board game with a friend, a loved one, a family member. Picture them in your head. And at some point during the game, they just take the board and flip it over. The pieces, the board goes scattering everywhere. Okay, so let me, that's just happened. Here's my question. Does it take long to pick up all the pieces? Not really. It depends on the game, but it's not going to take you more than like 10 minutes. Is it going to take you a long time to set the game up again? Unless it's like a heavy strategy Euro game like the games I play, it's not probably going to take too long to set up again. But that's not the point. When they flip the game over, they're trying to communicate something to you, their opponent. It's not the setting up. It's not the picking up. They're trying to communicate something. And what do you think they might be trying to communicate when they flip the game over? Joe, what do you think they're trying to communicate? 
I don't want to play. That might be what they're... What else might they be trying to communicate? Anger. Joe, you got another one? I don't like this game. JJ? I accept defeat. Well, that's a bad sport, but that might be what they mean. Pat, you got one too? You cheated. That was one. Yep, that, I've seen that one happen. When Jesus enters the temple with a whip, driving out animals, dumping out coins, would it take a long time to clean all that up? Eh, not too long. Longer than a board game maybe, but I don't think it would take that long. Do you think it would take that long uh, to, to set the tables up again? Yeah, probably not. In fact, what Jesus did in this text probably didn't last for very long. Probably an hour after he left, they all kind of moseyed on back in there with their animals. They set their tables back up and they continued their business. But that was never the point. Just like the person flipping the board game, Jesus is trying to communicate something. Jesus' actions in the temple were a symbol. He was symbolizing something. And his actions in the temple were also prophetic. These were actions filled with meaning. It was a protest. It was a demonstration. This was meant to say something. But what did his actions say? What did it all mean? Now, remember what we said last week. Jesus' own disciples didn't understand what he was doing. They didn't understand what he was doing until after the resurrection. Look again at our text, verses 16 and 17. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. When did they remember? Did they remember it in the moment? When he was talking to the pigeon sellers, I think they actually remembered it later because of what it says later in the text. Verse 18, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead... His disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. What's the scripture that they remember? It's this from the Psalms, zeal for your house will consume me. It was after the resurrection that they started saying, okay, wait, I remember he did this, he said this, we remember this text, suddenly this all makes sense. The temple cleansing they were able to see the meaning of his actions. What was it about Jesus' resurrection that helped the disciples put all the pieces together? Here's your first blank. If you like to take notes in the back of your worship guide. Jesus' cleansing of the temple symbolically demonstrated what Christ would what Jesus would accomplish through his death and resurrection as the Christ. What Jesus did in the temple symbolically demonstrated what Jesus would accomplish through his death and resurrection as the Christ. So last week we saw why. Why did Jesus do what he did? What gave him this zeal? What gave him this authority? And the answer was very simple. Jesus was zealous because he was the son of God. God is his father. This house belongs to his father. 
And he walks in as one who knows his father. And he says, this is not how my father wants it. And as his son, I'm saying, get this stuff out of my father's house. He was acting as the son of God with the heart of God and the agenda of God. But the meaning of his actions, what he was trying to communicate through what he did, had less to do with his sonship, his relationship to God as father. And it had more to do with his being the Christ. Oh, I'm going to keep bringing you back to John 20, week after week after week. This story was recorded in the Gospel of John. He tells us in chapter 20, for what reason? So that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. So last week we saw his sonship, his being the Son of God. So what does this communicate about him being the Christ? Let's think about that word Christ. What does it mean? What does the word Christ mean? What's wrapped up in it? Let's, let's brainstorm it as a group. What does it mean, Christ? Anointed one? Okay, so yes, yeah, so it's the Hebrew word Meshiach, which means Christ, or, or, or means anointed one. Okay. What does that mean? I'm going to say it a little bit louder. Set apart? Okay, so Jesus is a, is a set apart figure. Set apart for what? In the Old Testament, who was anointed? David was a king. Okay, kings were anointed. Who else? Priests were anointed as well. Prophets, that's right. So when we see Jesus being called Christ, anointed one, it certainly means king. And, and that really was the Jewish expectation that the Meshiach, the Messiah, would be the son of David who would come, sit on the throne of Israel, drive out their enemies. So there was this kingly expectation But there's also these other aspects as well. That he's going to do something for the souls of Israel. To restore them to God. He's going to speak God's word to them. And he's going to restore them to God. What does it mean that he's the Christ? Here's your next blank. The Christ foretold in the Old Testament would fill a role within Israel that was both religious and political. Him being the Christ was both a religious and a political uh, title. So what would one expect then of the Christ when he comes? Well, the Jewish expectation leaned toward the political rather than the religious, but not to the exclusion of the religion side of things. There was no separation of church and state in Israel. But what they expected was a very nationalistic, triumphal, victorious sort of figure, right? They expected Jesus to come in on a white steed, with doting crowds, a patriotic song on the wing, fireworks in the background, and then kicking the Romans out of town, getting the Gentiles out, and taking the throne of David to rule with God's righteousness, God's justice, and God's peace. But what do they get instead when the Christ first comes to Jerusalem after he's been revealed to John? And to John's followers. They get a guy by himself swinging a whip in the temple and knocking over furniture. This is the Christ. Now, uh, I have to issue a retraction. Last week I stated that he made this whip out of leather. Scott said, I, don't, I heard somewhere else it wasn't leather. So I ended up, <laughs> Scott and I had this great email exchange where I was like, I end up having to go to like Herodotus and Aristophanes, all these old classical texts to see the use of this word. And what we learned 
was that the, the whip was actually made from some kind of reeds, like uh, bulrushes, so either small ones of that or, or strips, so it was not, in fact, leather. We could argue whether that matters, but just to clarify, um, I, think, I think the point is that this Christ looks like a crazy person. And that tells us something about his role as the Christ. That what the Jews expected of the Christ was largely incorrect. Here's your next blank. Through his prophetic actions in the temple, Jesus was communicating that as the Christ, he was bringing an end to temple sacrifices and temple worship. That this is one of the main things on his list, that he is bringing an end to temple sacrifices and temple worship. It's true that he didn't want the merchants there in this court because he was the son of God and because he, he agreed with his father's agenda. But that wasn't everything he was communicating because he is more than the son of God. He's also the Christ. And as the Christ, his first order of business in Jerusalem was not rebuking Romans or driving out the Gentiles. Instead, it was giving notice to the temple system that its days were numbered. That this is soon to end. The arrival of the Christ, mind you, in the second week of his ministry, the arrival of the Christ is the death knell of temple sacrifices and temple worship. The whole temple system is now on borrowed time. They've gotten their pink slip. Well, where do we see that in our text? Well, after Jesus has run off the merchants, he begins to speak. Look at verse 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? He could have said, I'm the son of God. That's what gives me authority. He could have done a miracle. It's not what he does. Instead, Jesus answered them. Destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So when the Jews ask him, what gives you authority to drive out these merchants and cause this scene? He doesn't really answer them. Instead, he says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. But he wasn't talking about the physical building called the temple. He was talking about his body. Let's think about this carefully to make sure we understand. Then we're going we're to dive in head first. So here's my, my first premise. I'm doing this again. The Christ enters the temple. He interrupts sacrifices, and he interrupts worship. In the immediate area where he is, all worship all sacrifices, it halts. That's premise number one. Premise number two, the Christ refers to his body as a temple, then foretells that the Jews will one day destroy his body and that it'll be raised three days later. So when Jesus calls his body a temple, he's not being like a 21st century uh, fitness guru that your body is a temple, man. Like that's, that's not what he's saying. He's saying that his body is the actual place where God and man meet. It says something about the incarnation, that Jesus is both God and man fully present without commingling. But he's also saying that if you want to know God, you come to me. You come to my body because I am God in human flesh. If you know Jesus, you know God because Jesus is the mediator between God and men. So here's my conclusion. It's your next blank. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus, a new temple was erected. 
which rendered temple sacrifices and worship obsolete. When Jesus was raised from the dead, a new temple was erected, which rendered temple sacrifices and temple worship obsolete. This is a primary reason that 20 years ago I had to reject at least large chunks of dispensationalism. I I never expect the Jewish people to rebuild the temple. That's not an eschatological hope of mine because it's already been done. The new temple was erected when Jesus was raised from the dead. But I'm not zooming in on this to assault the theology of our Baptist and non-denominational brothers. There's something even more relevant for you to see here. That the death and resurrection of Jesus changed everything. The death and resurrection of Jesus changed everything. More specifically, I think it changed two things in this text. The death and resurrection of Jesus changed how people can know Yahweh God. And the death and resurrection of Jesus has changed how people worship Yahweh God. So let's unpack these one at a time, starting with the first. The death and resurrection of Jesus changed how people can know Yahweh God. So before Jesus was raised from the dead, where did you have to physically go to meet Yahweh? I mean, you could learn about him in temples. You could learn about him from followers of Yahweh. But if you wanted to be in relationship with Yahweh God, to be in the presence of God, where did you ordinarily have to go? The temple. It's your next blank. Before he was raised, the temple was the ordinary place to meet Yahweh and to be reconciled to him. You want to know him? You want to be reconciled to him? You've got to go to the temple. That's why you have these annual festivals and feasts wherein all Israel would go on pilgrimage to Jerusalem. It was so that they could connect relationally with Yahweh at least once or twice a year. Yes, they'd worship in their hometowns and their synagogues throughout the land. They would serve Yahweh with their life. But the presence of Yahweh was localized on earth to the temple. So you had to go there to know him, to worship him, to be with him. And what happened in that place? Here's your next blank. At the temple, sacrifices were made for sin so that sinners could know and worship God. You want to be reconciled to God? You want to be forgiven of sins? You want to to know him? You've got to go to the temple. You've got to make these sacrifices. So animals died on behalf of people. Substitutionary atonement so that those people could know and worship God. But the death and resurrection of Jesus changed everything. Here's your next blank. Through the death of Jesus, a singular sacrifice was made that justified all who believe the promises of God. In the sacrifice of Jesus, a single sacrifice was made that justified all who believe the promises of God. This is what Hebrews chapter 10 communicates. Look in your worship guide. It's printed for you. It says, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The book of Hebrews really makes sense of a lot of this. The author of Hebrews says that the animal sacrifices actually did nothing. They didn't forgive sins. Rather, they were a symbol and a sign pointing to Jesus The one whose sacrifice would forgive the sins of all who believe. From Noah and Abraham even to you and me. So when the fulfillment of that sign had come, namely Jesus, 
Was there a point for animal sacrifice to continue? Not at all. Because Jesus had done forever what those things had symbolized and signified. How are we forgiven of our sins? Not by making sacrifices at the temple, but by believing in Jesus. Here's your next blank. Sadly, Christians regularly act as though something more needs to be done to reconcile them to God. As though they still need to do something meaningful to secure their forgiveness. Regularly, every one of us probably have these moments where we feel like, well, there's, I need to do something meaningful to feel secure in my forgiveness. Some, some sacrifice I can make. Why is that? I think this is just core fallen humanness. Every human being, every one of us, every person you work with, every one of your kids, every one of your family members, everybody you know has a deep need to justify themselves. Every one of us look at ourselves and we see deficiency, brokenness, shame, guilt, and we feel a need to prove ourselves, to make something of ourselves, to make ourselves lovable, to justify ourselves. In ancient times, they would do it by making extravagant sacrifices to their gods in order to, to, to gain their favor. In modern times, our whole lives seem to be an exercise of trying to justify our experience. To make ourselves seem worthwhile, lovable, acceptable to God, to others, or even to ourselves. And the good news of Christ is this. There is nothing more for you to do if you trust in Christ. If you trust in Christ... You have been declared righteous. God loves you. God is even pleased with you. Even when you are being not meaningful at all, not godly at all, because you have the righteousness of Christ, God's pleasure rests upon you. So if you never do anything meaningful with your life, if you fail in everything and in every way, but you trust Christ, he delights in you. He loves you. You don't need to do anything but trust Christ. This is why we have a Sabbath. This is why on this day we don't work. We don't do nothing. Why? To remind us there's nothing left to be done. Instead, the Holy Creator calls us to know him. To enjoy him and to worship him, to be in relationship with him. So hear me now and hear me clearly. If your life doesn't uh, amount to a hill of beans in the world's perspective, that's okay. All God wants is to know you, to love you, and to be loved by you. He doesn't want your sacrifices. He doesn't want your efforts. All he wants is for you to be nearby. That's what he meant in Hosea 6 when he said this. Look in your worship guide. It says, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. That word steadfast love is chesed. We've seen that before. It's the love of family. 
God wants you to be near him, to know him, to love him. That's all. The death and resurrection of Jesus changed everything. It changed how you can be reconciled to God. Temple sacrifices and really no works at all are required. It is required only to trust in his one-time sacrifice and then you're, you're good with God. That's it. But secondly, here's your next blank. After the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, the Holy Spirit was given so that the presence of God was no longer localized in a physical temple, but was democratized through the church. So the, the, the presence of God was no longer localized to the temple. You didn't have to go to the temple to know God, to be in God's presence. That it's been democratized uh, among his people. So we don't have to go to Jerusalem anymore. We don't have to go to a particular place to know God. But, so where? Where can we be in God's presence? Where can we go to meet God, to have that relationship, to have the kind of worship that Israel experienced in the temple? Where do you go? You go to the church. And I don't mean the building. I mean the people. Look at verse 19. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. So who is the new temple? Jesus. Thank you, Henry. It's true. Jesus is the new temple. So you want to meet God? You want to be with God? You go to Jesus. But kids, where, where is Jesus right now? Anybody know? Thank you, thank you, child at heart. Yes, that's right. He is in heaven. Jesus is in heaven at the right hand of the Father. So uh, unless we die, there's no getting to Jesus, is there? His presence is far from us, except that he has given us his Holy Spirit. And as we saw last week, when you interact with one person of the Trinity, you're at, interacting with them all. They are a tri-unity. Three distinct persons of one Godhead so that we can be confident that when one is acting, all are participating with them. When you meet with Jesus, you're interacting with the Father and the Son. And when you meet with the Spirit, you're interacting with the Father and the Son. I understand that's mystical and I understand it's strange, but I have no clearer way to express it except maybe the Nicene Creed. Maybe we should do that next week as our uh, profession of faith. But kids, let me ask you this question. If Jesus lives in heaven with the Father, where is the Holy Spirit today? He's in us. That's right. He lives in Christians and with Christians. So if you want to meet Jesus, if you want to know God, where you got to go? Here's your next blank. If you want to meet Jesus, you need to either talk to a Christian or preferably interact with a community of Christians. You don't know Jesus. You don't live in the presence of God. You want to know God and be in his presence. You've got, you got to talk to a Christian or you've got to go to a community of Christians. Listen to how Paul describes this in Ephesians chapter 2. It's printed in your worship guide. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy what? Temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. 
So if somebody wants to be reconciled to God, they got to go to Jesus. He's the place where you meet the Father. And where can you meet Jesus? Through the church. So if Jesus is the new temple, he was raised from the dead as the new temple, he's a cornerstone that is being built upon you, the people of Christ, the body of Christ, the temple of God. Inasmuch as you are united to Christ through faith, you are a part of this new eschatological temple. Now, as we're going to see next week in Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus, this is not the only way that the Spirit works. The Holy Spirit is not bound to you and to me physically so that he cannot go and do whatever he wills in the world. Every one of us knows people who have been reconciled to God by just reading the Bible. They didn't go to church. They didn't talk to a Christian. But who wrote this book? Spirit-filled Christians. Who printed that Bible and gave them that Bible? Probably Spirit-filled Christians. But let's not lose our mooring in the text. Jesus is declaring that the temple, it's going to be closed soon. It has run out of its purpose. Why? Here's your next blank. Because the eschatological temple, the end times temple, the temple that brings in the end of all things, the eschatological temple, rather than being a place in Jerusalem, is a living, breathing house that is spreading through the whole world at the behest of God's Holy Spirit. The eschatological temple, the the end times temple, is not a place in Jerusalem. It is a living, breathing house that's spreading through the whole world at the behest of the Holy Spirit. Even now, in this moment, literally this second, God's Holy Spirit is moving across the world. The Spirit is retaking territory in a way that transcends all national and tribal barriers because the only requirement to know God To be reconciled to God is to trust Christ, to believe the promise of the gospel, and you will be justified and filled with God's Holy Spirit. What does that mean for our relationship with God? Here's your next blank. To be a believer in Christ is to be in constant relationship with the God who is near. Be a believer in Christ is to be in constant relationship with the God who is near. So if you, Christian, filled with the Spirit, you want to be with God, you want to worship God, you want to enjoy Him, you don't have to go to church for that. You don't need to go to the temple for that. God is with you. God is with us to know us and to be known by us, that we would always actually be living out of our relationship with him. Well, that's the case. What's what's the point of all this? Is there any point in worshiping together if we can worship God all the time, if we're always in relationship with him? Well, again, the death and resurrection of Jesus changed everything. It changed, yes, the temple sacrifices and temple worship. It changes how we worship. That's the next blank. There's no blanks. Uh, or next point. There's no blanks. The death and resurrection of Jesus changed how people worship Yahweh God. So before Jesus died and was raised from the dead, how could people worship him then? Here's your next blank. Before, Yahwistic worship required human mediators leading a specific repeated process in a specific place. So human mediators were there doing the sacrifices week after week after week. 
That wasn't bad. That wasn't wrong. God had told them to do that, but it was a foreshadowing of what Jesus would accomplish. So after the resurrection of Jesus, there was no point to it anymore. They were fulfilled. They were completed. But what's the new reality? What is worship now that Jesus has come? How are we to worship? Here's your next blank. Every Christian, as a part of the worldwide temple of Yahweh, is able and invited to worship at all times. Every Christian is able and invited, perhaps even commanded, to worship at all times. And that means you have a direct line to God. You are invited to sing praises to God whenever you want. You can pray whenever and wherever you want without a human mediator. You can enjoy and exalt God without any mediation. But it means even more than that. It means that all of life is worship. Everything we do, even the really, really ordinary moments, are intended for the glory of God. Look at how Paul puts it in your worship guide, Romans 12. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. It's a weird verse. You think about bodies and flesh in the Bible seems to be kind of a negative sort of thing. But he says, use your body to promote the glory of God. Through the mortification of your flesh, through your sanctification, becoming more like Jesus, your whole life, the life you live in the body is for worship. Because we have been justified through Christ's sacrifice. We have been reconciled to God through faith alone. All of your life is now to be a sacrifice of praise. All of life is meant to be lived to the glory of God. And here's what that means. It's your next blank. Everything you do is to be worshipped. Something done for the glory of God. Everything we do is to be worshipped. Something done to the glory of God. So the question we ask daily is not, what can I do to deserve God's favor? What can I do to live up to God's favor? No, no, no. We don't ask, uh, what can I do to get God's blessings and God's favor in my life? You, you have all that already. <laughs> You have the love of God, you have the pleasure of God, you have all of that in Christ. Instead, we say, what can I do to enjoy the prized position that I have? God loves me. He lives with me. How can I enjoy that today? How can I direct glory and honor and praise to God in everything I do? And here's the answer. How do you do it? Whatever you're doing, whether you're working or eating or drinking, whatever you do, aim to do it all to the glory of God. That means sweep your floors to the glory of God. Change diapers to the glory of God. Make spreadsheets to the glory of God. Sell products and services to the glory of God. Disciple children to the glory of God. Speak of Jesus to others for his glory and his glory alone. Sleep a reasonable number of hours to the glory of God. And be awakened by a crying baby to the glory of God. All of life exists 
to make much of God in Christ. You don't exist for you. You don't exist for your name and fame and position and power and prestige. You exist for the glory of God. You exist to make much of Jesus. But you can't do that alone. You are not the temple of God all by yourself. Jesus is the new temple. And as we are united to him, we become part of a much larger building made up of all of us. Here's your next blank. Our individual lives of worship find their root and grounding in the church's community life of worship. Your individual life of worship and everything you do finds its root and grounding in the church's community life of worship. In short, we need each other. We do. Listen, I love what we do here on Sunday mornings. In fact, in the EPC, if you've ever read the EPC Book of Order, it's a real page-turner, there's not much unilateral authority granted to the pastor. In fact, the only place where I really have unilateral authority is in worship. What we're doing right now, if if I just going to be a real hard nose and be like, no, this is how we're going to do it, even the session has to go with, uh, with what I say. So I am ultimately responsible for everything that happens in this hour and a half or so. And here's the crazy thing. If I was going to design the worship service that fit my preferences and desires exactly, it wouldn't be this. Uh, there are actually a number of things that I would change. I, I didn't grow up a traditional Presbyterian. Uh, I grew up Baptist. And my spiritual journey moved through non-denominationalism, megachurch, the emerging church movement, back to kind of a traditional Reformed theology. I've never, I had never worn a robe in worship until I moved to Covington. I didn't own one. The church I was at before I came here, another EPC church, I wore shorts and sandals on, Saturday, on Sunday mornings and I played electric guitar at church. It was radically different. Um, I, I'd never talked about Lent until I came to FPC. Here's what I'm getting at. I need community worship. I need Sunday morning, what we're doing right now for my spiritual health and growth, the same that you do. But what I need more than the specific trappings is I need you. And I need the word and I need the sacraments. That's about it. I need the word preached. I need the sacraments administered. And I need you guys. Everything else is negotiable. The reason that we gather together, the reason we do things the way we do it here at Faith is not because of me. It's because of you guys and the context that we live in. We choose songs and we do things in a certain way because we believe this will connect with you and bless you and will bless our community. It's because it's not about me. But the fact is, from Monday through Saturday, I won't worship well on my own without this. Without the word preached, without the sacraments administered, without you. If you don't prioritize weekly worship and relationships with the people in your church, your individual spirituality is destined to be malformed at best or failed at worst. What were we made for? 
We were made for a relationship with God, and that turns us back to people. We were made to be in relationship with Emmanuel, God with whom? Us. The death and resurrection of Jesus has changed everything. And when Jesus turned the tables, when he drove out the merchants, when he declared himself to be the new temple, he was communicating something. This was a prophetic sign, namely the temple was soon to be closing, and there was now a fuller, deeper, more lasting way to be reconciled to God and to worship him. So here are my questions for you in closing. First, are you still trying to make God happy with you? Are you still trying to reach some ideal or standard that you just can't reach? Christ has met the standard on your behalf. He has obeyed the law of God. And if you believe in him, you are forgiven and you are righteous in Christ alone. So stop your striving and rest in what he has done for you. Know that God's love and pleasure rest upon you. Second question. How's your worship? The end of the temple meant the beginning of worldwide, week-long worship. So have you forgotten that every moment of your life is meant for worship? Have you been distracted by the gray dullness of life's repetition, forgetting that each moment of the ordinary and the dull is still intended to be a sacred expression of joy in Christ? Third, how's your connection to these people, to the worshiping people of God? Are you committed to deep vulnerable relationships with these people? Are you committed to weekly worship? Because it's through these relationships and through this worship together that we are formed as individual worshipers of Yahweh. The death and resurrection of Jesus changed everything. And the disciples, they didn't get it until after the resurrection. And as verse 22 says, when therefore Jesus was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this rich, mesmerizing, confusing, exciting text. The first time that Jesus went into the temple courts, drove out merchants, thank you, Lord, that there's so much ground for meditation here. But Lord, I want to pray for my friends, my brothers and sisters, that you will help them, first of all, to to, to find in Christ all that they need to be reconciled to you. That through Christ alone, they would find joy, comfort, that they are loved, that they are forgiven, and that they would cease any sense of striving to deserve your love. Christ has already done it all. And Lord, from that, help each of us to live a life of worship in everything that we do, even the mundane things. I pray, Father, for each man, woman, boy, and girl here that you would give them, through the gospel, the freedom to be vulnerable with each other, that we might know each other truly, that we might lean on each other, depend on each other, that we might pray for each other. Knit us together in relationship so that as we worship, 
we would grow together. We love you, Lord. We pray this in the name of Jesus.